Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome to the Industrial Security Podcast, everybody. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting with Andrew Ginter, and he's the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. Andrew is going to introduce the subject and the guest of our show today. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Rick Driggers. Rick is the Deputy Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA for short. I sat down with Rick at the DHS-ICS-JWG fall event. That's the Department of Homeland Security Industrial Control System Joint Working Group. The event happens twice a year. It's free to attend, um, but, you know, so that there's, there's a plug for the event. Uh, but I sat down with Rick and uh, we talked about recent developments in, in his agency. Let's listen in to you and Rick. Let's start at the beginning. Is it CISA or CISA? Uh, so good afternoon. Uh, it's CESA. Can you talk about about CISA? Can you talk about the agency? What is the agency all about? So the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency was established in 2018 uh, by the president. The um, prior to that, we were doing a lot of the same things that we're doing now, but we were a staff element attached to the Department of Homeland Security's headquarters. The um, Congress and Senate wanted to elevate the cybersecurity mission, the infrastructure security mission that CISA has. So they signed into law in 2018 the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Act to make us a standalone agency with inside the department. Our focus is really infrastructure security and resilience. We look at that through really two lenses. One of them is cybersecurity. The other one is physical security. We um, focus really on two major things that fundamentally underpin everything that the agency does, and that's building strong partnerships that are grounded in trust, as well as sharing information, as much information as we possibly can with the appropriate context by working with our international partners, our partners in the intelligence community and federal law enforcement, as well as our partners within the private sector. So, Rick, that sounds like a very big mandate. Can you give us the next level of detail? What are your high-level priorities? What are the the big programs that you've got going within this mandate? We've got five immediate priorities inside of our agency. The first one is around election security and making sure that we're working very closely with the state and local community, as well as uh, other uh, election-related organizations, election security-related organizations, so that we can provide support. Obviously, the elections constitutionally are ran by and administered by the state and local community. And we wanna make sure that obviously that stays in place. And what we wanna do is make sure that we stand by and ready to provide whatever support the state and local governments need to do that. Supply chain is another uh, priority of ours, uh, particularly uh, the cyber threats that we are seeing from China and the upcoming rollout of 5G technologies, very concerned about that. Protecting uh, our federal government particularly the .gov networks and systems. We have a mandate to do that, working very closely with departments and agencies, CIOs and CISOs. We do that in partnership, although we do have the authority to to levy some mandates on departments and agencies around certain um, cybersecurity practices. We would much rather do that in partnership with departments and agencies. And so we're very methodical and very thoughtful about when we do push out a binding directive. Another one is around soft targets. As I said at the beginning, we do focus on physical and cybersecurity with regards to infrastructure security. So soft target security is uh, very much a focus of ours around active shooter, school safety, crowded spaces, counter UAS, and things of that nature. And then the last one is industrial control systems. Obviously very focused on industrial control systems. You're very familiar with the ICS joint working group that supports information exchange as well as ICS risk reduction strategies by fostering collaboration within industry and between industry and federal government, as well as our international partners as well. And so we're very focused on industrial control systems. I think that throughout the uh, previous years, we've been very focused on building out those capabilities and services around analytics, hunt and incident response, and doing vulnerability assessments, and engaging with the community through the ICSJWG. 
what we want to do is be much more strategic with regards to industrial control systems and really focus on bringing the whole of government into alignment with regards to how we're thinking about investments and how we are um, dealing or not dealing with, but how we are engaging uh, the private sector community as a whole and really build a community of interest at the practitioner level uh, as well as at the executive level so that we can understand a lot more about what the government brings to the fight and what we can actually do to help the private sector as well as state and local cover down on the risks associated with industrial control systems. So Nate, what you know, I, I didn't hear Rick use these words, but um, you know, the gist of, of what I heard him say is that the, uh, the new agency reflects uh, a heightened priority on critical infrastructure security um, in, in the government. It, you know, I think reflects a desire to, to pull things together into sort of a, a, a bigger picture to become more efficient, more effective at, at all of this. You know, a concrete example of that that, uh, again, Rick didn't mention, but I remember uh, was mentioned at the, uh, at the ICS-JWG was a CISA annual national cybersecurity summit that, that's happened twice now. And this is uh, a combined summit of uh, sort of IT and OT functions about, you know, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's business critical infrastructure, there's commercial critical infrastructure, there's banking critical infrastructure. Critical infrastructure is sort of a big term. You know, I work with the industrial critical infrastructure. But this was something that pulled all of it together. Um, I understand there were four or five tracks, one of which was industrial. Um, you know, I'm told there were, you know, it, it, it was a free conference, but I'm told it was oversubscribed in the sense that you had to sign up. Um, 1,600 people signed up and you know that was the capacity of the venue so they they had to you know uh shut down additional registration so there's enormous interest in this and you know to me this reflects to me it reflects the future of this this function of of critical infrastructure security because you know people have been talking the talk about about uh you know IT and OT integrating for like 10 going on 15 years now in the last couple of years, what, what we've seen at Waterfall in the industry is that, you know, people are actually starting to walk the walk. More and more um, enterprise security teams are getting more and more involved, really, uh, you know, in earnest, in large numbers across a, a lot of enterprises and a lot of industries. And so, you know, to me, maybe the, the, the way forward is one of these uh, joint uh, things where uh, events where everything everybody everybody pulls together and uh, you know you've got a large contingent of people there who are interested in in, in industrial as well as as the uh, the uh, sort of more classic enterprise security um, I was a little disappointed that I wasn't invited to the event um, I forget the lady's name but I, I talked to the lady who was uh, was running the ICS JWG event and I said you know I think Pretty much everybody here would have been interested in the combined event. Can we get invited to the next year's combined event? And her answer was yes. You're right. That makes perfect sense. Uh, you know this this will happen. So I was I was happy to hear that. I know that I get on a regular basis. I have for many years now alerts about vulnerabilities in industrial control systems. Alerts about attacks. I know that the organization that I'm getting these alerts from has has changed. Um, you know, can you talk about the evolution of the organization? Can you talk about continuity? I know there's been a lot of change, but I still seem to get what I need. Is that going to continue? Can we continue counting on this this organization to for the, the the kinds of things we have in the past? We did a realignment back in 2017 uh, to really pull together like functions to get functionally aligned. But all of the same products and services and capabilities around vulnerability assessments, uh, the analysis that we do, providing hunt and incident response services, the analytical exchanges and the information sharing programs that we have, all of that remains the same. In fact, in the industrial control systems function, we've actually invested more funding in the past couple of years in this um, part of our mission. You used to do assessments. Do you still do assessment services for industrial sites? We certainly do do assessments for industrial sites. We have the cybersecurity evaluation a tool that we use 
we work very closely with industry um, on that particular uh, tool to provide them a vulnerability assessment that can protect their information through protected critical infrastructure information, and it provides them a score uh, relative to other types of facilities. Andrew, what is this tool that Rick was just talking about? That was the CSET tool, you know, cybersecurity uh, evaluation tool. Um, this is a, a tool that, you know, it's free of charge. The, uh, the Department of Homeland Security has been making it available for many years now. Um, it's a tool that, uh, in a sense, encodes a lot of standards and advice uh, into a piece of software. And, in, you know, I've never used it, but in my understanding, it's like a, it's a question and answer thing. Uh, it'll ask, you know, it'll, it'll go through, I don't know, NERC-SIP and say, okay, NERC-SIP, you know, requirement uh, 7.31 is that you have to have passwords on all your machines. Um, you know, do you have passwords? Uh, yes, I do. It also says that you have to have a password management system in place for password complexity. And so it'll take you through these things. It's sort of a, a, a question and answer where you can say, you can evaluate yourself and say, how well do I, do I comply? Um, the, the news that he didn't mention about CSET, the news at the ICSJWG is that the Department of Homeland Security, you know, has been making it available for free for a long time. They're also now open sourcing it, so you can get the source code. Um, in my understanding, you know, one of the big benefits of having the source code is the ability to expand the tool into uh, standards that you know the tool has never incorporated because you have to pay to get the standards. So things like the ISO series of standards, the, uh, the uh, IEC, the International Electrotechnical Commission 62443 standard, a very influential standard that everybody cites, but to get a copy of it, you had to pay for it. And so the DHS could never really embed these standards in this tool they were giving away because the owners of the copyright, the IEC, would potentially come after them and say, you've, you've infringed on our copyright, you've embedded the standard in your tool, you can't do that. And so now with the, the tool open sourced, these other organizations have the opportunity themselves to extend the tool and make versions of the tool available for cost or for free or whatever they decide, um, available to the community uh, with their, you know, paid for standard embedded in it. So So that was the you know, that's the long answer to, to what is the CSET tool. So that all sounds like very important work. Um, you know, you mentioned industrial a couple of times. Can you talk more specifically about uh, your, your focus in the industrial space? So we stood up a uh, industrial controls uh, security, cybersecurity initiative probably about uh, six months ago or so really with the idea of my agency building out a strategy of how we're going to bring together all of the various different services and capabilities and how we need to think about those long term. And as we started to look at these, uh, and we laid out four priorities around, one of them is asking more from the community and bringing more value to the community from the government, digging into data, understanding what data gaps we have, um, and what data we need and how we can work with the community, private sector, state and local, international partners to fill those, th th that, that data. And then really looking at how do we apply deep data analytics, machine learning, um, auto, um, artificial intelligence to the data that we have so that we can make sure that those, we can start asking very, very tough, very hard questions. We can automate that as much as we possibly can and leave the processes um, and the and the and the judgments and those things that require critical thinking to our to our humans, our, our our analysts. Right now, we have very manual processes across all of our analytical endeavors, and we want to make sure that we are leveraging as much data as we possibly can in the analytics behind those to automate and orchestrate a lot of that. And then the the fourth one is really looking over the horizon at what the threat landscape is going to look like, the vulnerability landscape, what, what types of infrastructure are going to exist in 5 to 10 to 15 years, and making sure that we're keeping an eye on that so that we're putting plans in place, that we're evolving our capabilities, our services, as the threat, the, uh, the vulnerability, and the infrastructure landscape evolves. 
so that we're staying ahead of that. And I, the example that I've, I've given when I've gone out and talked um, is that, you know, five to 10 years ago, we weren't really concerned about cloud security, um, that type of infrastructure, because it didn't exist or it wasn't widely um, deployed. Now it is, and so we are very concerned about cloud security. So what is the next type of infrastructure that's going to potentially come online that we need to be concerned about so that we're, we're prepared and ready? Along with those four kind of priorities looking across all of our initiatives, when we started going through those, we realized that this isn't just something my agency can, can do. We really need to work with the Department of Education, or the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, uh, the intelligence community, other federal law enforcement organizations, because we really needed a whole of government approach. We, A, don't have all the resources to cover down on that. We don't necessarily have all of the partnerships inside of this agency, and we certainly don't have all of the, all of the uh, subject matter expertise. So how do we bring all of that together? How do we get it aligned? so that we can start to engage the community, the private sector community specifically, um, as, as one voice. And so we stood up an interagency working group about four months ago, as I said earlier, and that interagency working group, based on hearing feedback from the community, is focused on four lines of effort. The first one is around building out an ICS cybersecurity workforce. We all know that workforce in cybersecurity at large is a major problem within the United States and quite frankly globally. The latest, one of the latest reports I saw on workforce uh, shortage was around 500,000 uh, cybersecurity positions uh, available in the United States alone. Um, and that, that is obviously going to be um, a lot more in, into the millions when you look at it globally. So workforce is a major, major effort there. Another one is around supply chain. As I said earlier, my agency, one of our priorities is around supply chain, particularly with regards to China and the rollout of 5G. Uh, the same holds true for supply chain third-party vendors being able to, to do um, critical product evaluation and things of that nature and really understand the hardware and the software components of the control systems, determining the components that are common across multiple devices to make sure that we can do that research uh, on the vulnerabilities and develop risk mitigation. And then the third one is around enhanced ICS security standards. And that's really about the ICS community collaborating to enhance cybersecurity standards for control systems, including taxonomy, lexicon, and interoperability. And then the fourth one is focused on advancing ICS's incident management capabilities and really bringing the community together to ensure that, it can, that we can detect the presence of malicious actors on ICS networks, we can respond effectively to mitigate those incidents and restore ICS operations to pre-incident levels as quickly as possible. So you can see with those priorities and those particular levels of effort, there's no way that one agency within the federal government can cover down on that. So bringing the interagency together from a federal government perspective and then engaging with the private sector is really the only way we're going to be able to cover down on all of that. Okay, Rick talked about a lot there. Andrew, could you give us a uh, a quick summary? Sure. Um, you know, he talked about sort of, he said five priorities, but it kind of worked down to four and four. Um, the The first four priorities that, you know, I, I remember from his slide at the ICSJWG, he talked about asking more from the community, asking the community to help with the, the, the effort more. He talked about uh, gaps in the data that the, uh, the organ, that the, you know, CISA, had already. He talked about deep data analytics to take advantage, to you know, use the, the, the data to help infrastructure security. Um, so, you know, ask more, data gaps, deep data analytics, and he talked about looking beyond the horizon, uh, you know, what's coming at us. Then, you know, he mentioned this interagency group, and I guess this task force came back with another four topics. Uh, one was workforce development, another was uh, supply chain, especially he mentioned China, a third effort was standards, and the uh, the fourth had to do with uh, industrial incident management. So th that that was his uh, his uh, short short eight priorities. And Rick also mentioned cloud computing. Andrew, in your talk with him, did he go into any detail about what he was doing in that space? Because we obviously know that 
cloud computing and ICS security, it can be a touchy subject. Absolutely. I, I asked him about that offline and he said, yeah, he, he mentioned cloud as, a, as an example of something that was on the horizon a couple of years ago and they'd sort of dealt with. So I said, yeah, what, what, what does that mean in the industrial space? He says, no, 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 no. That was something that was on the agenda a couple of years ago as a horizon, as a new topic in one of these other or several of these other critical infrastructure spaces where you're, you know, you're sending a lot of information out into the cloud. It was the, the information privacy thing that, you know, they'd been exploring in that space. Um, you know, he, so that, that, that wasn't, uh, that was an example from, from one of the other critical infrastructure areas, not, not so much from the industrial critical infrastructure. So let's go back to, to Rick. You know, he gave a lot of stuff here. I basically went into the next level of detail on all of these topics going forward. You talked about first about calling on stakeholders to do more to help with cybersecurity, to, to, to help with this cooperation. Can you give some examples? What is it you'd like organizations to do, owners and operators, vendors, other, other organizations to, to help you out with? I said at the beginning uh, of the podcast that one of the things that underpins everything that we do, that fundamentally we do inside of my agency is around partnerships. Partnerships are extremely important to us across all facets of critical infrastructure, security, and resilience. Quite frankly, cannot do this mission uh, without our partnerships, particularly those industry partners. And what we want to do is really map out and identify what are those tangible things that the private sector needs the government to do. We know that we can bring threat information. We know that we can bring um, other types of information that may be unique from a government perspective uh, to the fight. Uh, but we have other investments ongoing inside the federal government to support the community or, or this mission from a research and development perspective and things like that. We need to hear from industry and engage with industry to make sure that those are aimed at the right things, that we're focused in the right areas, that the timelines make sense, um, and also give them an opportunity to help shape and influence what those investments look like. We work with private sector partners across the uh, critical infrastructure community every day. I mean, just this past year, we established a set of national critical functions, working very closely with uh, the private sector. We have an information communications and technology task force that's focused on supply chain. That task force is made up of government leaders as well as those from the private sector. So we do this all the time. Um, and when I talk about the private sector when, with control systems, I'm talking about critical infrastructure owners and operators. I'm talking about the vendor, the vendor uh, community that actually makes these types of devices. But I'm also talking about the IC, IT security companies that, that have the subject matter expertise to put in place mitigations and to, to do the vulnerability research that, that we need to cover down on the risks associated with industrial control systems. That still seems kind of general to me. Andrew, do you have more specific details? Well, I don't know what their plan is in the long term, but what I observed at the, the ICS JWG was that for the first time, there were a couple of um, sessions scheduled called brainstorming. Uh, they used uh, you know an online tool so that people sitting in the room could uh, anonymously contribute ideas. Uh, you know, they had a moderator, a very good moderator up there, uh, driving some discussion, you know, drawing out the audience on specific topics. Um, you know, there were a, a comparatively small number of people who, who contributed, but, um, you know, hopefully this is something that people will be, you know, become sort of more used to in the future, bolder about, about making uh, recommendations. I was also intrigued by your comment about deep data capabilities to disrupt the uh, the cyber kill chain. Um, to do deep data analysis, you need the data. Uh, can you talk about what kind of data you need? Where Where's this data going to come from? The deep data capabilities are really about analyzing and delivering information and, to your point, disrupting the ICS cyber kill chain. The data that we currently have right now is either shared with us by all of our partners through, in, in a lot of its indicators, we get uh, information shared to us by other departments and agencies. We also get information by doing the core services that we offer through vulnerability assessments, hunt and incident response. But we're only scratching the surface because we have pretty good visibility 
inside the federal government. We don't have good visibility at the state and local level. We don't have good visibility within the private sector. And quite frankly, we don't need persistent access or persistent visibility. What we want is those communities within the state and local and within the private sector to work with us, to share information, to participate in this working group that we've established when we open it up to the private sector so that we can not only just share information, but so that we can move beyond that and actually getting into context. Uh, and that is going to be, I think, the magic sauce where we can really apply deep data analytics to the problem set. Uh, right now, we're in the process in my organization of trying to become a data-ready organization. So we're trying to get our hands around all the data that we have uh, and making sure that it's inventoried and that our analysts have access to it all and that we're automating it so that we can turn manual processes into automated processes where, where that makes sense. We will be able to have a much better understanding of not only the data gaps we have, but also of the, the data gaps that we have that are actually not known yet um, because we don't know necessarily all of the data uh, that exists. And so working with the private sector entities uh, that have the type of visibility that they require to do their, their job and protect their particular facility will only help us in understanding how we can apply deep data analytics, how we can develop common mitigations that we can push out to all of the cyber network defenders that are that are working in the OT space. Another thing in your answer that intrigued me, you've you've got a priority of looking over the horizon into the future. You know, we we all want to know what the future holds. Um, you mentioned uh, Chinese 5G supply chain. I mean, I think we all understand the, the, the concerns there. What can we do about them? I don't know that the government has specifically that answer to tell industry what to do about them. Certainly we can share information about what the threat looks like as that evolves. We can share indicators of compromise, particularly you know, with the vis visibility that, that we have. But I really think that you know, we need to come together with industry uh, industry owns the risk here with, you know, 80 to 85% of the um, OT environments or the critical infrastructure being owned and operated by the private sector. So we need to hear from them so that we can kind of come together to develop mitigations, common mitigations. We can identify common vulnerabilities and we can share that across the broader community. Um, I, I do think that there are a lot of subject matter experts inside federal government as well as outside federal government. I think that there are also a lot of OT environments that are operating small utilities or, or, um, or that are operated within small utilities or other types of, of companies or organizations that may not uh, have that type of subject matter expertise or may not have that filter on looking at things from a security perspective. And so how do we enable them? How do we get them to be engaged in this particular effort or at least to pay attention to it? How do we get some of the larger companies to engage with the smaller companies to help lift up their cybersecurity posture? That's what it's really about. It's about really taking everybody's knowledge, bringing that to together and really enabling the entire cyber network defense community across ICS to lift up the, the, uh, the cybersecurity posture of everybody. Andrew, I found that to be a pretty interesting question, and you're getting into some unique material with Rick here. But admittedly, when it comes to China's supply chains, this is a subject that I'm not particularly well read on. Can you give me some background information to help me understand what you and Rick are talking about? Sure. Um, you know, let's use uh, Huawei as an example. Um, this is a, a Chinese company that produces a lot of 5G cell phone technology. Um, last I heard... Uh, American companies were, to one extent or another, forbidden from using Huawei equipment. Uh, there was a, a trade ban on, and the, the concern was national security. There was a concern that um, the Chinese government had the power to order Huawei or other companies that have a very strong presence in China, had the, the power to order those companies to insert back doors to let the Chinese government, I don't know, um, you know, 
listen in on on uh, American conversations or sabotage American operations or or whatnot. The concern was that the government had undue influence uh, over the, these companies, and so you know, should we really trust anything we buy from them? Now, for the sake of fairness, although the undue influence point may be different in China and the U.S., would we also say that all of the major powers have reason to suspect one another of doing this same thing? Absolutely. And and uh, if I may back up a moment, um, the uh, I actually remember um, there was a report that came out of the U.K. government, uh, United Kingdom, um, they actually, I think they got hold of the Huawei source code and analyzed it and came back and said there are no backdoors currently in the source code. They also said that, you know, there's so many security vulnerabilities, you don't need a backdoor. It's possible to hack into this stuff already, but, you know, presumably that can be addressed over time. I think one of the, the ongoing concerns is that even if there's no backdoors today, uh, this stuff gets updated. You have new versions come out. Are you going to, re- you know, repeat the source code review on every every version that comes out to prove that nothing has been inserted over time? And to your question, um, it's not just Huawei. It's not just China. Um, most of the world's nations are concerned that governments, you know, the American government could order uh, businesses in America to put backdoors in the, you know, the UK government could order businesses in the UK. This is a, a, a worldwide question where people are asking, how much can I trust the technology that I'm buying from other countries? So this is why it's it's in the, uh, you know, the horizon area saying this is this is something that, that we need to address. Right. So now that we understand the problem, what are Rick and his colleagues prepared to do about it? Well, what I heard him answer here is that, you know, um, they haven't figured that out. What's in the, you know, over the horizon bucket in their priority list is stuff that they are engaging with stakeholders like owners and operators and vendors and and whatnot. They're engaging with stakeholders to figure out um, what do they need the government to do? What kind of resources, what kind of information, what kind of systems, what kind of services, what kind of stuff, what are, you know, what does what does industry need in order to deal with this issue? It's it's still very much an open question, not just in the United States, but but around the world. Let's get back to your interview with Rick. The other thing that that caught my ear was your mention of standards. Now you know the ICS cert this you know the the, the control system focus in the DHS historically has been very influential in standards development. You folks issued some of the very first standards and guidance in this arena, and then you know I don't know five years later it looked like you stepped back from that role. Um, I'm assuming because you had you know other fish to fry. There was other higher priority stuff because the standards initiatives in a lot of fronts had, had got going. If you're coming back into the standards arena now, what, what's your focus? What's your goal coming back into that? So the goal is really to continuously engage the community on what they're seeing and how do we evolve uh, and advance the standards that currently exist? Uh, do we need to develop new standards based on a particular threat actor or, or, or TTP or tradecraft? Do we, um, you know, one of the things that we just published recently was our cybersecurity essentials. Now, those are very uh, information technology focused on that side of the uh, of the business, so to speak. But how do those apply to an OT environment? So there's guidelines there. I really think it's working with the community to make sure that we're all talking, uh, you know, around a similar ta- taxonomy, similar lexicon, we're talking about interoperability and we're applying consistency across the community. Um, and I think it's looking at the standards that we currently have and seeing, do those need to evolve? Do those need to change? Uh, and making sure that we have a focused effort on that. We have heard from the community over the past year or so that this is an area that they want us to focus on, us in terms of the community. And so um, that is why we made it one of our our lines of effort. So, Nate, um, what I heard Rick say there was, uh, you know, they're getting back into the standards space because the community asked them to. And uh, it sounded like the the focus that the community had asked them to, 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 to get into was sort of the the leading edge stuff. And 
I just wanted to reinforce that. That makes perfect sense to me. Now, I was I was one of the voices, you know, one of many presumably that asked them to get back into the standard space. Um, you know, back in the day when they were bootstrapping the standards process, uh, there wasn't much. There wasn't anything. And now we have a lot of standards underway. But the thing about standards is that they take a long time. And it's difficult for a standards body. Standards, in a sense, are backwards looking. They're saying, what, what, uh, what are we doing? Because if you're going to say this is the standard way to do it, you need a, a large enough body of practice to say this is the standard way to do it. This is what we need to document as the standard. But when we're talking about emerging threats, we're talking about the industrial Internet of Things, we're talking about this supply chain stuff, um, it's going to be, I think, a long time before we see a consensus in the, 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 the community of practice saying this is the standard way to solve this problem. Um, I think there's an opportunity here for uh, an organization that's got the, the resources to bring a lot of subject matter experts to bear to say, you know, guys, I kind of think this is what we should be doing and put out, if not standards, at least put out um, some, some concrete advice that can evolve into standards over time. But at least there's something out there for these, these emerging fields. And I think that's, that's very valuable. I'm, I'm very happy to see this happening. So you talked about being short hundreds of thousands of people in this field, in the USA alone. I mean, this sounds bad. If we don't have the people, how much trouble are we in? From my perspective, being short that many people creates a national imperative. And I think that as we continue along this track, continually year after year after year, the cybersecurity workforce gap continues to increase. At least it has the last two or three years. The ICS squared 2019 cybersecurity workforce study is where I got the statistic about a 500,000 cybersecurity uh, professional workforce gap inside of America. They also stated that the workforce is going to have to grow by 65% just to cover down on the workforce that's needed now. And so I think that workforce is a, is a major issue. I think that if it continues without us coming together to figure out how to tackle the issue, that it could become a national security issue uh, in a year or two. The, um, I don't think we're doing enough as a country with K through 12. I think there's a, there's these amazing pockets of excellence that that's happening across the country um, with some nonprofits. There's some startup companies. There's some stuff that the um, that the, the the federal government is doing around CyberCore and centers of academic excellence, as well as uh, scholarship for service. So I think that there's a lot of really good things happening. Uh, the the administration just released uh, this year a um, uh, an executive order on workforce. And so that that caused the federal government to start looking at things from a cybersecurity perspective about how we could bring things together. We've got OPM running uh, reskilling and, and upskilling academies uh, to retrain uh, people that are already in the workforce. Um, I've been working with my team here about how do we do more with K through 12? How do we um, engage uh, state and local, how do we engage the uh, the parent teachers associations? How do we engage the um, Department of Education? Not how do we engage, but engaging Department of Education, and and really doing more in K through 12. Um, how do we make sure that kids are exposed to online safety, are exposed to security concepts, and then have available electives in high school so that they can come out. And, and head into a cybersecurity profession. I think we focus a lot as a community on four-year uh, and and uh, an undergraduate, or I'm sorry, graduate level uh, programs, uh, and we're not focusing enough on K through 12. There's there's a lot of kids that don't necessarily either a want to go to college or don't have the um, uh, available environment to get them into college. Uh, but we can bring them into a cybersecurity professional track without getting, having a, uh, a four-year or a, uh, a graduate-level degree. But we have no mechanism to do that. Um, and so how do we trade a, a trade school, a vocational school, to get kids coming out of, uh, out of high school into programs like that? This is going to take a whole community approach. We're, you know, I'm looking at this as a national imperative, as I said, or my organization wouldn't be necessarily engaged. 
um, like 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 we have been across the community with um, with, with education and, and workforce issues. Um, and I think that you know the workforce that we have now, it's incredibly talented people. Um, the workforce that we have now is going to have to change and evolve uh, to make sure that we are meeting head on the challenges uh, and the threats and the risk that we're going to face in five to ten years. So that that workforce is going to have to change as well. So I think from an academic perspective, um, across you know grade school, uh, high school, um, college as well as developing trade schools, uh, government, private sector. There's a lot of private sector programs uh, that are um, really, really awesome trying to crank out and get kids and, and, and get folks interested in cybersecurity. But I don't think anybody's really pulled the strategic thread across the nation to pull all of these things together and see where we can make the biggest bang for our buck and make the biggest dent uh, in this issue. Um, so we. It, from my perspective, we have a lot of work to do on the workforce. All right, Andrew, what Rick was saying there was very interesting to me, actually, that cybersecurity content might factor into even like as early as K through 12 education. You know, that K really stuck out in my ear because, of course, cybersecurity and, and kids that young don't really seem to mix. Um, I think his point that we might want to incorporate more cybersecurity education for kids at younger ages is smart. But my question is, of course, you don't really learn about such highly specialized material usually at even, you know, until college. I mean, I got out of college before I knew how to do my taxes. So is this really something that would make sense? What's the right way to prepare kids for cyberspace without just, you know, presenting them with content that's far outside the realm of math, science, English, you know, writing? I think there's a couple of answers there. That's a good question. But um, one of the answers, I think, is that... um, He's talking about, I think, in this in this case, he's talking about CISA's um, broader mandate because they have, you know, they're dealing with election manipulation. They're dealing with, uh, you know, financial infrastructure, people getting their bank accounts hacked and stolen. Um, so I, I think he's talking about the, the, the big picture security here. But um, to your question of how much of security does it make sense to teach to grade school students, um, you know, every... Well, I don't know about every, but a, a lot of grade school students have cell phones. Um, every one of them knows how to to use a, a computer to, to to write up a report. Um, you know, this is part of life. Uh, it, you know, I didn't have my first computer until I was I don't know. I was an adult basically. Um, but you know, so computers are part of life, and security is part of life. If you look at the trend for the last 35 years, what are the, the, the gross overall trends in computing been? Computers get cheaper, which means, you know, the, today they're everywhere. There's like 200 computers in a new car. Computers are everywhere. Everywhere there's computers, there's software. Second law of SCADA security, all software can be hacked. And so the fact that there's way more computers and there's way more software in the world every year that goes by means there's way more targets for cybersecurity attacks every year that goes by. The second trend we've seen for 35 years is greater network connectivity. And every message, the third law of SCADA security, every message that um, you send from one computer to another potentially and codes an attack. All cyber attacks are information. Every piece of information can be an attack. And so this trend towards greater connectivity means there's every year that goes by, there's more and more opportunity to attack this, you know, steadily increasing target population. So, and, and neither of these trends looks like it's going to reverse anytime soon. And so really, you know, we talk about the kids nowadays having cell phones and computers, and of course this is part of their life for the rest of their life, um, This trend, these trends are, are not abating. The, the trend towards the need for greater security, because there's more targets, because there's more opportunities for attacks, the trend, you know, if, if you want a job, get a job in security, you're, you're set for life. Neither of these trends is reversing. The security problem is going to get much worse before it gets any better. And so teaching the basics of security. You know, can you really believe what you see on a website? Can you really believe what you see in email? You know, teaching the basics of security to 
to grade school students to me makes makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying, and, and as strange as it uh, can seem in my in my brain that you might teach cybersecurity to kids in fourth, fifth grade, or whatnot, it was around that age, if I really think about it, maybe even younger, um, I have this distinct memory of sitting on my mother's computer, I must have been seven, eight years old, and clicking on a piece of adware, I think it was like, you know, promoting some mortgage deal or whatever, I only clicked on it because it was so colorful. And suddenly windows start popping up on my mom's computer, and I'm freaking out because I'm not even supposed to be there. And the whole family's freaking out because nobody understands cybersecurity, it was whatever year it was. Um, so I can understand the use in, in just basic cybersecurity tips for kids at that very ripe age, because they are uh, a vulnerability in some sense. Very much so. I mean, I remember um, I remember working with my daughters at about that age. Um, you know, I, I, I took them and uh, I showed them how to build a website from scratch. I said, you know, you fire this tool up and a blank page comes up and you put some images in and you put some text on it and you look at another website and you you make this website look like that one so it looks official. So we built a website that basically said dinosaurs still exist, they've evolved into turtles. And I remember, you know, my daughter's looking at the website when we're done, looking at it going, that looks really official. That looks just like, you know, the the school website that that I believe every day. And, you know, deliberately driving home the lesson, you've got to be careful what you see on the internet because it's that easy. So, yeah, I, I very much believe that, that um, you know, there's a role for teaching grade school students the basics of, of security so that, you know, they've got the foundations like don't believe everything you see is, is, is a fundamental foundation. Be careful what you click on is, is another one, a fundamental lesson. I wanted to ask you about another thing that you spoke about with Rick, which is this this point that there are, you know, maybe half a million security job openings in the U.S. and, and a couple more million in the world. Um, what I'm wondering, Andrew, is, is we've talked with, with past guests occasionally about how it can be sort of tough to get a good job in security. But if there are this many openings, is it really difficult to get a security job when everyone's looking? Well, I didn't discuss this with with uh, with Rick, but you know, it is a question that I've been thinking about for a long time. My my own guess as to what's happening is is this. I mean, some jobs, yeah, it, it, it's uh, they're they're straightforward to get, but it has a lot to do. You know, pe- people use the word security. They say, "Oh, get a job in security." Well, there's no such thing as a job in security. Um, there's, I don't know, hundreds. Of different specializations within security, the skill set that you need, and if you, you know, the temperament, the, the kind of person that you need, who can sit in an office all day in front of a bank of screens, seeing a stream of alerts come by, figure out what these alerts mean, and conclude this batch of alerts here, I can ignore because it's, you know, it's normal. That batch of alerts over there, um, this is something unusual. I need to pick up the phone and call the incident response team and have them fly out to site. That's a very different skill set than the incident response team who packs up all of their tools and their their uh, you know their USB sticks and their their computers and you know gets on the aircraft and flies out to site and gathers all the data and does the investigation and tries to answer the question is this a real thing or is this normal? which is, a, again, a very different uh, skill set from somebody who takes a 200-gigabyte hard disk image and tries to find the malware in the hard disk image. Um, finding a job in security that matches your skill set can be much harder than finding a job in security. And, you know, uh, there are the jobs out there, I think, is the, the, the lesson I take from Rick's uh, information. Um, but depending on your skill set, depending on the needs within your geography, you might be you might need to move around a bit to find a good match for your skills in the security industry. So we always try to leave the last word with our guest. Is there a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? Thank you. It's been great uh, to be here. I, I, I like to leave all of these things with a bit of a call to action. And uh, as I've said throughout the entire podcast, this isn't something that the federal government can do alone can do alone. Uh, We need the private sector, particularly our industry partners that are in the critical infrastructure space to work with us um, 
and sometimes actually lead and, and be out in front of us. And we need to give the space and the room from the federal government perspective for private industry to do that. Um, and I think that we are in a much better place now than maybe we were five to 10 years ago and doing those sorts of things. Um, and I think that, you know, collectively from a collectively from a collective security perspective a collective defense perspective we've we've got to do a much better job of really laying out what our vision is what our goals are continuing our collaboration um, with the private sector as well as the public and our international partners as well it, it really is a connected ecosystem across physical and cyber uh, and it's all digitally connected and a breach or a failure could be catastrophic and quite frankly could happen to any entity uh, across our nation. So, you know, we've got great challenges that lie ahead of us. Uh, we've got a lot of opportunity to work together. Um, and so that's my call to action is that we can just collectively start to work together, focus in on these on, on this particular mission area and, and move out. Historically, the Department of Homeland Security has been very influential in the industrial cybersecurity space. It's good to see that, you know, even with the new organization, that that continued uh, involvement and interest in the space is continuing. I mean, um, in the past, the, the DHS under the ICS CERT has put out best practice guidance that was widely read, widely cited. They put out the CSET tool that, you know, uh, has been free forever and is now open sourced so people can even expand on it. Um, the industrial control system CERT, you know, responded to industrial incidents. They did industrial cybersecurity assessments. They put out reports on assessment results and on the, the incidents that they responded to. They, these reports, again, are widely read, widely cited. It's good to see that we can still count on this kind of, uh, you know, these, these kind of outputs and this kind of leadership in the space. And with the new organization, um, it sounds like we can look for increased alignment between IT and OT security initiatives in the future. Um, this, is, this is good news. This is important work. It's, it's good to see that it will continue. All right, that was Rick Driggers. Now, before we go, uh, we're starting a promotion for this podcast. Andrew, you have a book you have to talk about and a way for listeners to get their hands on it. Yes, indeed. It's uh, it's the Black Book. It's my latest book that came out earlier this year. Um, in the book, I document what the world's most secure industrial sites actually do. Um, you know, the attack environment, the threat environment continues to become nastier. As a result, all of us are increasing the strength of our security programs. And so I suggest that what the most secure sites are doing today is sort of a set of techniques that all of us need to be considering uh, for our sites going forward as we increase the strength of our programs. The thing is that very little has been written about what the world's most secure sites do. And so I took the opportunity to, uh, you know, understand uh, what, what these folks do, uh, write it down. They ask different questions. They get different answers. They see industrial security differently. And I've tried to capture all that in the Black Book. And here's the deal. Um, we're hoping that people will post reviews of the Industrial Security Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, you know, reviews, good, bad, or ugly. If you send me a pointer to your review, let's say on LinkedIn, or, you know, email if you need to, andrew.ginter at waterfall-security.com. Send me a pointer to your review, uh, you know, as a, as a LinkedIn message and your shipping address, and I'll, I'll do my best to get a, a copy of my, my black book out to you folks while supplies last. Great. That's it for Rick Driggers. Thank you so much to him for sitting with you, Andrew. And thank you, Andrew, for sitting with me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Thank you all for listening.